Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. My name is Micah Barnum, and I am the South Campus Pastor. It is a joy to be with you this morning, opening up God's Word together. If you are joining us uh, this morning from West, from the Hive, from Converge, uh, from South Campus, and all of you online, I want to say a special greetings to you. It is a joy that we get to worship the Lord together today. If you would please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9. We have three short verses today, but we have a lot of work to do as we look at the words of Jesus this morning. It was early in the morning on December 7th, 1941, that George Eliot and Joseph Lockard were sitting at their radar post at the northern tip of Oahu, when just after seven in the morning, Elliot noticed something unusual on his radar screen. There was a blip larger than he had ever seen, and so seeing this on his radar, he did what he was supposed to do. He picked up the phone, and he called his commander to report this anomaly. It took a few moments to get to the right person, but as these two men began to share with their commander what they had seen, their commander told them not to worry. The blip on the radar that you see is nothing more than a group of American B-17 bombers flying in from San Francisco. All was fine. History affords us the privilege to see clearly that this commander was wrong. It was not American bombers. It was actually 183 Japanese bombers coming in to bomb the base at Pearl Harbor. And because the servicemen and servicewomen there had no idea of the impending danger coming to them, they were going about their business as normal. And as a result, over 2,300 servicemen and servicewomen perished. And over 1,100 were injured. All because the warning that was issued was disregarded. This morning's passage that we are looking at is a warning message from Jesus. And as is the case for any warning message, it is communicating something that is hard. It is communicating impending danger, but its goal is to save lives. Its goal is to cause a responsive action that would Avoid the tragedy that is on the way. I've been praying these last number of weeks and preparing for this sermon that our hearts would be attuned this morning to hear the message that Jesus has for us, a message of warning, a message to bring hope and to bring salvation. A bit of context of where we are in the book of Matthew. Chapter 18 opens with the disciples asking a question of Jesus they want to know who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. This seems to be a theme of great recurrence for these guys. They want to secure their spot in the coming regime that Jesus, they believe, is bringing. And as is the case so often with Jesus, he doesn't answer their question. He gives them something other than what they were looking to hear. They wanted to hear how they could be the all-stars in his kingdom. 
But Jesus spends this whole next chapter conveying to him, to them, the way in which sin breaks our relationship with God and it breaks our relationship with others. And so let's take a look at the words of Jesus this morning. Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. What a surprise these disciples must have felt. Rather than hearing how great they were, they actually heard how broken they were. They wanted to hear good news, but what they got was the opposite. But these are the words that they needed to hear, and these are the words that we need to hear today. And so let's take a closer look at this. My first point this morning is that Jesus condemns the world for enticing people to sin. Jesus condemns the world for enticing people to sin. Look back here at verse 7. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Jesus sees the state of the world, the state that is true then and is certainly true for today, and he pronounces a deserved condemnation. It is a verdict that pronounces guilt. This word woe is a denunciation designed to communicate that we are separated from God, that we are opposed to him, and we stand directly in line with his wrath. And this fits exactly what Jesus says at the end of John chapter 3 when he says the wrath of God remains on anyone who does not believe in the Son of God. Our natural state is one of condemnation and wrath from God. Now admittedly, woes and condemnation and and wrath, it sounds like somehow we've missed our place in the Bible and we're somehow reading an Old Testament prophet. How can these words be from Jesus? How can these words be found in the New Testament? Why would Jesus say these things? Because Jesus sees what is so often blind to us, the spiritual realities of our sin. And it is this, that our sin offends a holy God. And we have completely lost sight of this today, that our sin is an offense. It is an affront to a holy God. Now today, we certainly understand what it means to be offended, right? Offense, being offended is certainly the trendy thing for us as a culture today. If you're driving and you cut me off, guess what? You've offended me. If you're driving 
in my left lane going under the speed limit, you have offended me. Stop doing that, right? I, I figured I would get a name in right there. That is offensive to us. But when it comes to understanding our sin, our understanding of offense is far too small when it comes to sinning against God. We miss the fact that the reason why the sins that we commit are so offensive is because we forget whom we are sinning against. It is a holy God who is the creator and the sustainer of our universe and who has given us his laws. And every time we sin against him, when we break these laws, it is a transgression against him. These are your sins. These are my sins. These are sins of the world. Each of them is an act of rebellion against an almighty God. And when we consider the person that we offend, the severity of our guilt increases. To give you an understanding of how I see this fitting together, I'll tell you just a short story. I have, I have four terrific kids. And a number of years ago, when they were a fair bit younger, we were sitting in our house one evening. I was on the couch, probably watching TV. When my daughter, I have three boys and one daughter. My daughter is third in the batting lineup. My daughter and one of her brothers were starting to get into a little scuffle. And as I felt the temperature rise in the room, I looked up just in time to see one of my sons reach up and slap my daughter across the face. Instantly, her eyes filled with tears, and my son got a big smile on his face. And in that moment, I stood up. But I did not, st- I did not stand up as my son's father. I stood up as my son's judge. Because we have a few rules that we have spoken in our house over and over again. You do not hit. You do not hit girls. And you do not hit my daughter. My son had been out of line for sure for one and two. But the fact that he had hit my daughter changed the nature of his offense And the degree of what he had done and its wrongness went up. This is a picture of how true it is, our sin against God. When we sin against him, it is a different level of offense. What should be more offensive in offending God, so many times in our hearts becomes less offensive. Because you know what? God doesn't get angry. God would never approve of, disapprove of me. My God is so loving, he's just going to forgive everything. There is no way my God would condemn me or that God would condemn anyone. Friends, that is not the case. When Isaiah stood before God and he saw the sense of his own anguish and sin because he knew that this God was holy, and he was not. Jesus sees our offenses to God, and he rightly pronounces condemnation. 
But Jesus here goes on to include, it's not just sin, it's the temptation to sin. And this is an appropriate condemnation because temptation is the starting line for sin. If our sins are deeply offensive to God, then it makes sense that he would also condemn the things that invite us to sin. The things that excite our appetites to do things that are outside of God's will. Temptation is the bait that hides the hook of sin. And our world has laid these baited hooks everywhere. As temptations increase, sin increases. As sin increases, temptation increases. And these two work in tandem to provide all that is necessary for godliness. So when Jesus took a look at the landscape of the world here and sees that our world continually pushes toward sin, pushes toward offending God, the condemnation from Jesus of our world is just. Know that Jesus condemns our world for enticing people to sin. But secondly, Jesus condemns the one who causes others to sin. Jesus condemns the ones who cause others to to sin. In verse 7, we get a condemnation that covers the world generally. But Jesus goes on to say, For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. What does this first phrase mean? That temptations are necessary. What Jesus is saying here is that our world is so broken that the only thing that it can produce is more brokenness. What is the necessary result of sin and temptation? It is more sin and temptation. This is the downward spiral of godliness. It is necessary that this happens because this is all that sin and temptation can produce. I like the way the New American Standard translates this. It uses the word Inevitable. It is inevitable that in our world, sin and temptation are the byproduct that we see. But in casting the broad condemnation, Jesus narrows his scope. And specifically, he narrows his focus to those who cause temptation. Woe to those by whom temptation comes. Not only is Jesus deeply concerned about sin but he is also concerned about those who lead others to sin, the way that we tempt others. Do do you hear this? Those who tempt others are under a specific condemnation from God. The way that you and I live our lives is not disconnected from those around us. The sins that you love the decisions that you make that may lead others into temptation, Jesus sees this and he hates it when our lives tempt others. Now look, it it would be easy for us to sit here and to list the number of ways in which our world lays these temptations. And it would certainly be easy to point fingers at people who are doing these things that certainly lay temptations that God hates. Hollywood, the music industries, politicians in both parties who peddle in godlessness. 
the purveyors of pornography, and this list could go on and on and on. But I would like to tighten this focus a little bit to those of us listening this morning. What about you? How are you tempting others? Do the people who see you in your life, when they look at you, perhaps from a distance, they know you by your reputation? For those who are up close to you and they see you behind closed doors, they know what you really think. Do you live your life in such a way that these people stumble because of your life? Christian, this should not be true of us. And we hear Jesus' passion about this not only in verses 7 through 9, but actually in the verse right before our passage this morning. You'll take a look at verse 6. Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Do you hear the force in Jesus' words here? A millstone is a stone that weighed typically between 75 and 100 pounds. But Jesus says here, not just a regular millstone, a great millstone should be placed around the necks of people who cause others to sin and thrown into the sea. Jesus is saying that the battle to fight temptation and sin is already so difficult that for us to lay down temptations, making that battle harder, increasing the likelihood that others would sin is an anathema to Jesus. I think this hits us in, in two areas. There are some of us that have blatant sin in our lives. And as we walk around in our sin, we cause others to view our lives and to join us in our sin. But additionally, there are some of us who are not walking in blatant sin, but we perhaps stand on the freedoms that legitimately are given to us in the scriptures. But we do so in a way that in standing on our freedoms, we cause others to stumble. And this is not to be. This is a condemnation from Jesus when we cause others to stumble. If you'll allow me to use another illustration from my kids. Kids are obviously great fodder for pastors to illustrate our points. But I have a 17-year-old son. My oldest somehow is 17 years old. He is about to enter the reality of the world as a man. So I've been thinking through all the things that I need to prepare him for. For the temptations that are out in the world. I need to explain to him exactly what a pyramid scheme is so he knows what that means. I need to explain to him why people keep calling, trying to renew his auto warranty so that he knows what is going on out there. But as my list continues to grow of the things that I need to prepare him for, I can't help but wonder what things have I already taught him? What things has he seen over these last 17 years 
and watching me as his father? What things has he learned? What things will he mimic when he becomes his own man and he moves out into the world? If he mimics me, will it produce in him godliness? Will he see an example to follow that will honor the Lord? Or will he see in me an example that will lead him away from the Lord? If my son treats his wife in the same way that I treat my wife, will he be honoring the Lord? If my son handles money in the same way that I handle money, both in managing my expenses, but also in generously giving when the time is appropriate, if he mimics me, will he be honoring the Lord? If he handles anger in the same way that I handle anger, will it be good? Will he be following the Lord? If he watches the same kinds of movies and TV shows that I watch, if he guards his heart against sexual immorality in the same way that I guard my heart, will he be walking down the road that the Lord has for him? There are people all around us who are watching us. And the lives that we lead are a testimony to what is right and good. Are we leading them toward Jesus or are we tempting them away from him? This is not only true for a father to a son, to a parent, to a child, but the friends that are in your lives, your coworkers, your neighbors, and an unbelieving world sees our lives. Jesus says, those who tempt others to sin are under a condemnation from him. Would we be people who do not tempt others to sin? but display every day the joys of obedience to our Savior. Well, lastly, my third point this morning. Jesus will condemn sin once and for all. Read with me again verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus makes some severe statements here. He says that if if there is any part of you that causes you to sin, then what is at risk is so significant that you should cut it off and throw it away because it is better to live life maimed than to enter into hell. Jesus makes a direct connection here between our sin and the fires of hell. And he does this twice. What does this mean for us? All of us, when we read the scriptures, we approach it with a framework that helps us to understand and interpret the scriptures. And and this is right and good. But sometimes when we approach a passage that doesn't easily fit 
into our framework, or sometimes a passage that makes us a bit uncomfortable. Sometimes we are too quick to run to another passage and say, well, yeah, but this says this, and this says this, and we lose the force of what this passage may be telling us, is telling us. I don't want to do that this morning. Let's linger on this verse for just a moment and hear what Jesus says. Do you see how Jesus clearly connects sin and the fires of hell? He says, if you do not make efforts to remove sin from your life, then all that you can expect from him is condemnation. Jesus is saying here this morning that there is a hell, an unrepentant and unforgiven sin puts you there. Friends, this passage this week has stopped me in my tracks because I have sin in my life. And friends, so do you. No one is without sin. And Jesus is saying here that this is a problem. He is telling us that we cannot live our lives holding in one hand onto a holy God and holding on to sin in our other hand and to think that everything is just fine. You must either separate yourself from sin or your sin will separate you from God into anguish. Please hear me this morning, friends. Sin must never be taken lightly. This is a sober warning to us. Sin is a serious matter, and if we do not take it seriously, we will never do the diligent work of removing it from our lives. Now look, it is always important when we approach the Scriptures to understand each verse in light of the whole. It is, it is folly to look at one particular verse and build out a broader theology without understanding it in the light of the rest of Scripture. So let's step back for a moment and see how this is functioning in light of the rest of the Scriptures. Yes, this is hyperbole. Jesus' instructions here to cut away parts of your body if they cause you to sin, of course, it should not be taken literally. The passage is not calling for self-mutilation. It is calling for self-denial. But realize, just because we don't take this literally does not mean we strip from it the strength of the passage. The purpose of hyperbole is to communicate strongly an important idea. Because what is at stake is intensely important. As Christians, we do stand on the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have assurance that he who began a good work in us, he will be faithful to complete it. Ephesians tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. There is great rest to the Christ follower that we are safe in the arms of a Savior then how, is, how does this work? How can sin 
lead to hell given these two truths. I want you to listen carefully because this is important. Yes, Jesus connects sin and hell. But it is not the case that our sin will exhaust God's grace and that he will reject us. What is the case is that sin so blinds and dulls our hearts that we ultimately will reject him. John Owen, in his incredible work, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, he writes this. This is what your lust is working toward. The hardening of your heart, the searing of the conscience, the blinding of the mind, the stupefying of the affections, and the deceiving of the whole soul. Realize that if you are here today and you have given up on the struggle against sin, and you no longer fight to pursue holiness, and you are happy to live your life holding on to God in one hand and holding on to your sin in another, then sin is doing its deceiving work on your heart. And Jesus is telling you that you are in dangers of the fires of hell. Jesus will condemn sin once and for all, and we must take our sin, the greatest severity, because it is a danger to us. Now look, these words from Jesus are hard. They are a sober warning. But remember, the goal of a warning is to save lives. It is to bring salvation. So I'd like to suggest three responses that we should follow as a result of these warnings. Have nothing to do with sin. Push back sin in your life by doing these three things. First, don't be enticed by the world. Do not be enticed by the world. Realize that sin is an affront to a holy God. It offends a God that brings wrath and judgment and payment on sin. And that should cause us to view the temptations of our world in a different light. Realize that sin never delivers what it promises. It only delivers death. Work to see sin for what it is. And you do this by setting your mind on things above. You do this by being here and hearing from God's word. You do this by reading your scriptures on your own so that when those temptations come, you can see clearly what truly is at stake. Second, Don't cause others to sin. Know that your actions impact others. And do not allow the way that you live to impact them away from God. Rather, as Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and to good works. And then thirdly, don't linger on the sins. Don't linger on the things that tempt you. Jesus tells us to consider the things that we do, the places we go, and the things that we look at. And if any of these things cause you to sin, then we are to remove them 
from our lives with the greatest of diligence and the greatest of severity. What might this be for you? Is it anger? Is it greed? Is it pornography? Is it unforgiveness? Is it gossiping? Is it adultery? There are so many things that tempt us in our lives to walk away from God. We need to not linger on these things. As those temptations come about, we should stop, we should cut it out of our lives and throw it away from us. Look, this is a hard message. All of us have sin in our lives, and so to look at something so firm a warning, it should put us back on our heels. Some of us have been holding on to sin, thinking that life is just fine, and we need to repent of that. Perhaps others of us have been fighting for holiness, and we're stuck in a cycle of battling sin and finding victory only to be tempted and to fall back into the sin that so easily grabs us and we're stuck in a cycle. What is the way forward? How do we overcome this? The way forward is by clinging to Jesus and to the grace that he gives us. Remember this. The way forward is by clinging to Jesus And the grace that he gives us, I love the way Titus, the book of Titus, brings these together. Brings grace into our lives. Read with me Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Don't miss this, because this is so beautifully important to us. Grace saves us and moves us into a relationship with God. But it is also grace that teaches us to live in our world, to say no to ungodliness. So many times we think that the way to move forward in personal holiness is the law. We're saved by grace, but then I got to run back to the list of things that I have to do, the things that I have to stop, and we embrace the law as the means by which we grow. But that is not the case. It is grace that teaches us to follow after Jesus and to live in holiness. This is the way forward. To look at sin and to realize it is dangerous and we must remove it from our lives, but we do so by the grace of God. I love the words from the beautiful hymn. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, but it was grace that my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour that I first believe. 
Friends, it is only when we understand our sins properly that we will treasure grace sufficiently. We're going to end our time this morning with a time of prayer. We're going to linger on these things from the the sermon this morning to give you an opportunity to reflect in your heart about where you stand with Jesus today. Give you an opportunity to pray and to commune with the Lord. So if you'd bow your heads, I'll lead us in a time of prayer. All of us are so easily enticed by the world. We are all tempted to sin and to run away from God. Would you ask the Lord to give you this morning a deep sense of his holiness and a desire to help you to be holy just as he is? Jesus does not want us to be people who lead others in temptations. Are there areas in your life where your sin has caused others to stumble? Where sin has led to damaged relationships? Would you ask God to give you a deep heart for others that you would pursue holiness out of a love for God and a love for them? Lastly, all of us have that one sin that we love to hold on to, to have it to be in the corner, in the shadows, something that we could never live without. Would you ask the Lord to reveal that to you? Would you repent of that this morning? Father, we thank you this morning for the life of Jesus. That because his body was broken, we have hope for life with you. Would you move in our hearts that we would understand sin does not bring life, it only brings death, but we find life in the risen Savior in whose name we pray, amen.